Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to make our way from verses, uh, starting in verse 1, make our way through verse 8 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 8. We began this study a few weeks ago on Christian ethics, just kind of looking at a variety of things that Paul moves through and addresses in chapters 5 through 7 that really hinge on, center on the idea of what is a sexual ethic for a Christian? What does that look like? How does that work in my life? How is that to be incorporated? Uh, what is truthfulness? And what role does it play in my life? And today, he, he kind of turns and he begins to address something that is it's almost like something you'd catch in an afternoon seminar. And so it's, you know, what in the world do lawsuits have to do with Christians? And what in the world do Christians have to do with lawsuits? And, and I want you to notice that he places it in between two statements of of identity, so to speak. And so back in chapter 5, the latter half, he's really wrangling with what is the church's identity going to be? How are these things going to work in the church? And then starting in verse 9, he talks about their former identity and kind of who they are now and how these things have worked. But sandwiched between these two things is a statement, a few verses on lawsuits. And so I want to read 1 through 8, and then we're going to walk through, and, and hopefully by the end of this, none of you want to sue me. Maybe Jesse, but none of you want to sue me. And so let's, let's read and walk through and see what the Word has to say to us. Paul writes, and says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go, go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But, but brothers go to lawsuit uh, against brothers and, and that before unbelievers? To have a lawsuit with another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. And so there's no shortage of jokes uh, about lawyers. There are no shortage of tales of frivolous lawsuits. You can find uh, that Kellogg's is suing ExxonMobil for the use of a tiger, making the argument that the tiger used by ExxonMobil walks and acts in much a similar way as does Tony the tiger. And so we find that, that like, these things exist out there. And so in some sense, we have to make sure that they don't exist in here. Now, there are a couple of caveats we're going to get through and, and go through as we move into this. I want to give some background so we understand kind of what Paul is talking about. And so the day Paul is writing, he addresses the subject of lawsuits. And so broadly, what would happen is you'd find that the, the richer members of the church and of the community would use legal apparatus. They would use lawsuits to get their way. You know, it was expensive to bring about a lawsuit, and so this is why we're able to make the decision and discussion that it's not likely to be the poor people. It's not most of us in this room suing one another. It's, it's, it's the rich people he's addressing in this. And so if you're rich, uh, pay attention. If you're, you're poor, well, lawsuits are cheaper, so you pay attention too. But, and so he'd find that the rich people were using uh, lawyers, they were using the courts to get their way and to exact, to take property 
from poor people to take property from those. So what would happen? And so I have a, a grievance against Philip. He's on the front row, and so that's where it's gonna happen. And so I have a grievance against Philip, and so I go to the magistrate. I say, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. Can you believe what he's done? The magistrate says, that's, that's, that's pretty wicked. I can't believe he's done that. Let's get Philip here. And so they send, and, and they bring Philip, if Philip's willing to come, and if Philip's not willing to come, and the magistrate's in a particularly fiery mood, he compels him to come, read whips, chains, handcuffs, drags him in. So Philip's there. Now he's irate. We're standing before the magistrate. The magistrate says, what do you have to say for yourself, Philip? Philip says, what now? Who now? What? And so he begins to kind of describe his perspective on the thing. So now here we are before the magistrate, and we develop what's referred to as a formula. And so I give my basis of how I see it, the facts of the thing, not my emotional pleas. Philip stands up, and he gives his facts of the thing, and the magistrate writes it all down in this thing called a formula. Now that formula is sent over here to a judge, and the judge reads the formula in preparation to hear the case. So here the case comes. And so I walk in with my representation, and Philip walks in with his representation. This is the first century court. And my representation hinges on my ability to afford the best Johnny Cochran-esque lawyer possible, right? If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. That's what I'm looking for in uh, an attorney. And so Philip has his attorney that he comes up, and so his same deal, he has the same idea that he wants to be represented with the most eloquent, a swift of tongue, and, and quick of speech attorney he can find. And so in the midst of this, this judge is ultimately determining, determining the case on the facts, the formula, and the compelling evidence, the compelling rhetoric engaged by these two lawyers. And this, this is a first century scene. It, it doesn't seem like it's changed a terrific amount. And so, but this is what he's talking about. And so this is the situation that they're caught up in. And so look at what he says. When one of you has a grievance, one of you has a property dispute. This is what he's talking about. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So what is Paul suggesting? Paul is suggesting that in the case of property disputes in the first century, they should not go outside of the church. Now, why is he making this argument? Well, he's going to build this argument on the basis of ability. And so we find that he's, he's building this, and this has been the case since Moses uh, instilled judges over the various tribes in Deuteronomy 1, and you can read about that, where Moses recognized he had an inability to adjudicate all claims that came before him. So he began to put different heads and different judges, and people had complaints they could bring in, and the judge would hear the case and decide. And effectively, Paul is saying, can this not be the same way for us today? But some of you, you have such grievances with one another, you have such uh, conflicts with one another that you would rather go outside of the church and allow, and he says, the unrighteous. Reading that, a non-Christian to decide the affairs that should rightly remain in the church. So let me just say something. So the church has kind of taken this, and, and, and there's an extreme we run to that is inappropriate. There are things, there are times that the church is not equipped to address. And so some churches uh, historically and some traditions have taken this to say that there is never the possibility for the Christian to engage in the lawsuit. There is never a possibility for a Christian to bring in uh, kind of government into affairs of church members. 
And so we've seen terrible things result from this. We've seen abuse well up inside the church, physical abuse within a family, sexual abuse to children, and the church says, we're going to handle this on our own. We're going to engage and we're going to handle this and we're not going to give the church a black eye by going to the authorities. We're going to investigate this on our own and we're going to bring some type of judgment to bear on this family. And I can tell you, this is inappropriate. God has, has instilled, he has established the courts, he has established the government for the meeting out of his judgment. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 13. Paul writes and says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Raise your hand if you're every person, right? Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Did any exist that have been instituted apart from God? Well, we read this and we say, well, I don't know, maybe. No, of course not. He says none exist that have been instituted except for those instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. When we find those who have engaged in the sexual assault of somebody in this church, we hear about it, what do we do? We report it. We report it. If we hear instances of child abuse, what do we do? Do we rally around them and say, it's okay? We, we report it. Why? Because we are compelled to do so. It is not our place to adjudicate these claims. It's not. Now, what do we do to these families in the midst of this? We come around them and we support them. But it is the government's responsibility to punish those who engage in wrong. It is the government's responsibility to bring punishment and justice on those who would violate the vulnerable in our communities, in our fellowship. You can read this week that the IMB is being dragged through the mud because they knew of somebody who was guilty of sexual assault of a minor, and they did not report it. We can't be caught being culpable of these things. We have to be responsible. We have to read God's word intelligently, not vapidly. Look what he goes on to say. Verses 2 and 3 kind of gives the, the reason why we should uh, be able to solve some of these things within the church. Conflict between brothers in the church. First reason he gives, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Then second reason, he says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so he gives us two examples. He says, You should be able to solve issues in the church because you're going to judge the world. You should be able to solve issues in the church because you're going to judge angels. Now some of you are looking around saying, This is not what I signed up for. I don't like conflict. I don't want to be involved in it. And so what in the world is he seeking to communicate? Daniel 7. Daniel 7, we see this wonderful picture. Uh, Daniel writes, says, As I looked, thrones, uh, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days, so God took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. This is an amazing picture. And so he's dressed in white. He's got white hair. What does that give us the indication of? Purity and holiness. And then what do we see next? Fiery flames. What does that conjure in our minds? Judgment. Judgment. 
It's the hair of his head like pure wool. His stone was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream issued and came out from, uh, from before him. And thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is eschatological judgment. This is, is end of times judgment. This is when God sorts the sheep from the goats. This is when he looks and in the Lamb's book of life, he said, you have believed and you have trusted in the blood of Jesus or you have disbelieved and not believed in the blood of Jesus. This is ultimately what determines the fate for every man, woman, and child. Do you believe that God has sent his son Jesus to die to atone for your sins? That outside of that, that you yourself are responsible and, and are due to pay the penalty for those sins. But Jesus has died and offered himself, his body, his blood for your sins. And that this Jesus rose from the dead. If this is the testimony of your heart, if this is the controlling influence of your actions, then you will be saved. So when the judge issues his verdict, it's not based upon my faithfulness. It's based upon Jesus' good work on the cross. But if I believe in something else, if I believe in my good works, if I believe in, in what somebody else's testimony of me, my mom, my grandmother, my wife, my kids, if I beg on God's better natures, I'll be found wanting. The only way to tip the scale for eternity is to bet on Jesus. Amen. The only way to tip the scale for eternity is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And inasmuch as you do that, when God stands and he prepares to bring judgment upon humanity, we don't stand in and lean in and say, oh, no, no, he was my neighbor. He's awful. He's got to go to the other place. No, 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 come on now. Come on now. She was nice. She helped me across the road. No, no, no. Like That, that was the tax attorney I talked to. You know the one. She deserves to go to the bad place. Our engagement isn't like that. When Paul writes and he says, we judge the world, we stand there with God and we cheer on his judgment of us being found guiltless. And he rightly and he alone is able to stand and to bring judgment upon the world. So look what he goes on to say. If the world is judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In each Christian resides the Holy Spirit. Do you know this? In each Christian resides the Holy Spirit, and he's giving to you wisdom, and he's giving to you knowledge, and he's giving to you insight, and he's giving to you peace, such that you should be able to stand in between brothers and sisters who have tension and help them see their way through. When we find that Christians ultimately aren't able to resolve tensions that exist between them, this is what we find. We find Christians unwilling to submit themselves to the movement of the Holy Spirit. This is it. This is what we find. Churches routinely split over like colors of carpet and, and choir robes and how many songs we're going to sing and, and, and where our money's going to go and all of these things. And, and Paul's point in this is all these things are trivial. This is just nonsense. What in the world are you guys arguing about? What are you stirring up this stuff for? You're going to stand with God when he brings judgment in the world and you can't decide what color carpet to put down? Are you kidding me? 
You're going you're gonna to stand when God's separating the sheep from the goats, and, and you're going to be there, and you'll be like, oh, remember that one time we were like, we want the maroon carpet, and then there was the white carpet group, and we're like, are you crazy? My grandmother had carpet that was white, and I spilled Shasta on it, and she died. Moron. And so Paul's making this argument and saying, well, you're going to stand with him and bring to the judgment of the world. Don't get caught up in being derailed by the kingdom efforts by trivial things. He says, do you not know that you're going to judge angels? Jude 6. Jude 6. We see in this, this, this find, it says, when the angels did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal change under the, until a great day. And then in 14 and 15, it says, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and the ungodliness of which they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We know biblically, we read that, that there was a revolt in heaven. The Bible tells us that fully a third of the angels left with Satan. So this gives us the idea that there are twice as many good angels as bad angels, if you're doing math, or maths if you're British. And so there's this idea in there that, that just as humanity will face a judgment, and that judgment will be centered on did you choose to follow Jesus, or did you choose to follow something else, anything else? so too will the angelic beings be judged. Did you follow Satan or did you stay and remain faithful to God? And so Paul's argument is if you're going to be engaged in these two things, then why can't you work this out? It's an argument from, from lesser to greater. We understand that these things that may seem so incredibly pressing upon us, we have an issue, and like somebody has built our house, and it's caving in, and, and they're a brother or sister in the church, and, and, and we're, we're struggling. Like, how do we work this out? What does this look like? If our first instinct and our first reaction is, I'm going to call Chase, I'm going to take everything they've got, that's probably not the right instinct. That's not even the type of law he practices. And so we recognize that if, if our immediate reaction is, I want to exact my pound of flesh, I want to make this thing right, and I want to make them pay, then likely you're entering into vengeance, not yours, and you've made this thing something that is dividing the brotherhood. So Paul goes on. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He says, look, if, if you have a brother and sister in the church, and you guys are together, and you have some issue, why don't you bring this to the church? Why don't you, you find somebody in the church and effectively his argument is this. You have, imagine you have this person who's completely inept and incompetent in the church. This person is more qualified to settle a dispute between brothers or sisters in the church than anyone outside of it. This is amazing. This is amazing for several reasons. Why? Because largely we are not raising up disciplined followers and believers in Christ. We're converting people to Christianity and then just hoping they grow from there. So imagine handing over something serious to be considered before somebody who's never grown in the faith. And we'd say, well, that's just that's ridiculous. But like bringing my two-year-old in here and saying, who's right, mommy or daddy? He's going to choose mom every time. <laughs> right? So we recognize that the failure of the church has been growing mature followers and believers, and the failure of the Christians in the church is not seeking to settle affairs within it. 
not trusting the church. Now, I want you to notice something. Nowhere in this is he said, bring it to the elders and let them decide. Bring it to the deacons and let them decide. The assumption is that any church member is capable. And that's weighty for everybody in this room. Every church member should be capable of, of discerning and deciding and settling disputes between other believers in faith of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons church membership is so incredibly important. If you do not belong to a local church, then you also have no body for resolving these conflicts. They have no, no tethered commitment to you outside of the universal church. They have no relation, relational mandate to be engaged with you to walk through these things. You're just a person who enjoys the benefits of the church, coming on Sunday morning, sending your kids to things, but you are not bought into the church. You have not invested yourself in the church. And so this is the call to membership. So Paul goes on, he says, I say this to your shame. When the church is unable to solve disputes which are its purview and turns them over outside the church, we should be ashamed. There should be the sense of disappointment. We recognize this happens, but we should be disappointed. Now, those in Corinth weren't even considering the church. They were rushing straight to the lawyers. They were rushing straight to the courts to handle all of their disputes. So Paul asked the question. He says, can it be that, that there's not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? You'll remember that the contention all along for those in Corinth was that they are wisdom. They are the be-all and end-all of wisdom, and that Paul himself was the one who was caught up to be lacking in wisdom. And so Paul wrote to them, and he said, look, you need to understand what true wisdom is. Wisdom is not eloquence. Wisdom isn't rhetorical flourish. Wisdom is this, and he tells them in chapter 1. He says, wisdom, uh, where is the one among you who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He says, so when you look out and you say, man, so-and-so is incredibly wise. These governors, these judges, these senators are incredibly wise, and not many of us say that very often. But he asks the question. He says, has not God confounded the wisdom of this age? Has not he turned it upside down? So what is wisdom according to the Bible? It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So this is the cosmic wisdom of God, that he sent his son in flesh, that he allowed himself all powerful, able to accomplish everything to be put to death at the hand of his creation, this is the wisdom of God. All-powerful, contained in humanity, in humility, suffering and dying. This is the wisdom of God. When power is displayed in beautiful constraint, this is the wisdom of God. The wisdom displayed here in Corinth is, is, is brother at brother's throat and sister at sister's throat, trying to exact their pound of flesh, trying to, to bring to bear the thing that they want to see happen with their property or in the church or in relationships. And he says, I say this to your shame. Brother goes to lawsuit against brother and that before unbelievers. 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He says it, it is a travesty when, when it comes to a Christian having to sue another Christian. It is an absolute travesty when a Christian has to sue another Christian. Whether that be in the case of divorce or disputes over property or some other thing, it is a travesty. Every time we hear about a couple who is heading towards divorce, our immediate response is always to, to direct and to encourage the possibility of reconciliation. Obviously, in the course of, of abuse, we're removing the offended party. If a husband's abusing his wife, we find a place for her to be safe. We get him help. But still in that moment, we do not think the divorce is absolutely necessary. It should be slow. It should be measured. And it should be engaged with people that love you, not lawyers who necessarily just want to make money off of you and to ruin your spouse and to ruin the person who has offended you. If you're a Christian in this place and you have a dispute with another Christian, your first outlet for resolution is not a lawyer. It's the church. It's the church. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's finding another Christian who can, who can stand in there and, and you can give as much as possible your side of things and, and the person that has offended you can give as much as possible their side of things. And then you have somebody who looks back at you and says, you're an absolute moron. He's absolutely right. And that place is the church. And somebody would do that as somebody that loves you, somebody that cares for you, somebody that would enter into the mess that you've made of the situation. And it's incredibly important because this is where we live. This is where we are. Has anybody been able to make it through this week without disagreeing with someone? Not me. Right? Not disagree with somebody, not me, as in exclusively. You don't understand what I'm saying. But it's difficult because many of us have contrary opinions, and some of us, quite simply, are just contrarians. Like you live to bring dispute and, and to breed a disunity with other people. This is why you have no friends. <laughs> and you think it's their fault. Contrarian. That's a fun word. I'm going to have a t-shirt made for the staff. We'll pass them around. Contrarian. I'm feeling I'll wear it a lot. But it's, 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 it's this terrific disappointment that in the church that we have to result to these things. As Paul tells us, if we have a lawsuit, it's already a defeat for us. And he has this devastatingly simple solution that's terrifying when you feel wronged. But can I tell you, it only works when you feel wronged. It only works when you feel wronged. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And I'll tell you why not. Because I want to be right. I'll tell you why I don't want to be defrauded. And I'll tell you why I don't want to suffer wrong. Because I want to see them be defrauded. And I want to see them suffer. I'm right. I'm absolutely right. And they deserve to pay for being wrong. Why don't we solve issues? Because none of us are willing to suffer for wrong. None of us are willing to be defrauded. And we're willing to go to extravagant lengths to prove our point and to prove the correctness of where we are. In the church, this has no place. I want you to think of the churches in this community and many communities 
that have split over the failure to resolve conflict. What does that say about the church? What does that say about the the indissolvable union of the body of Christ? It says it can be discarded for preference. It says it can be abused to get my way. But what if, what if, we, instead of being those, according to verse 8, who wrong and defraud our brothers, what if we followed the course of Jesus in Matthew 5, 9, and we were the peacemakers called the sons of God, and, and instead of defrauding people and wronging people, we join with Jesus where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What if we sought to possess what is ours when we engage in peacemaking instead of defrauding What if we follow the course of Jesus and we're willing to be defrauded and we're willing to suffer, not to prove our grit, not to prove our merit, but to prove the worthiness of our Savior? Why should Christians not seek to go to lawsuits against Christians? We primarily believe that we are all indwelt by the same Spirit even your brother whose sister who you contend is wrong. We're all indwelt by the same spirit, and that spirit longs to produce peace between you and your brother and sister in Christ who you long to see proved wrong. But you know what would take the wind out of their sails? Do you know what would bring all of this to an end? Is a willingness to be defrauded in a willingness to suffer wrong. It is not easy. It is not simple to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. There is an exacting toll upon each of us. But if we are to honor God in terms of conflict between other brothers and sisters, this isn't talking about Christian suing a corporation. This isn't talking about a Christian being engaged in litigation with a non-Christian. This is talking about lawsuits in the church. That's a different conversation. See, the babies are upset. (laughs) See what you've done. They've been defrauded and they've suffered wrong. (laughs) It brought about tears. And this is the posture that God calls us to. It's not easy. We won't find ourselves laughing. We won't find ourselves saying, defraud me some more. I love it. Means I'm defrauding. (laughs) Right? Maybe a sign that we need help. (laughs) The posture he calls us to is one of meekness. It's one of humility. It's one of mildness. And it's better to be, we we tell our kids this all the time. This is where I want to end tell our kids this all the time, and, and we have three boys, and they squabble, and they bicker, and, and each of them wants to be right, and the two-year-old always gets to be right. But between the two kind of more volitional parties, would you rather be kind, or would you rather be right? Now, in their hearts, they're thinking, I know there's only one right answer. Um, I want to be right. Um, but dad, for whatever reason, thinks it's better to be kind. If it's appropriate for our kids... Is it not much more appropriate for us when something of substance matters? The body of Christ matters. His church matters. Uh, The outward testimony of what people hear about us matters. 
we have an opportunity to display the goodness and the gracious kindness of our Lord, who when he was accused, when he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was whipped, when he was crucified, he did not revile in return, but he was willingly defrauded, and he willingly suffered wrong. And he calls us to do likewise. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. What an incredibly difficult word before us. We don't want to be defrauded. We don't want to suffer wrong. We recognize that's what your word is calling us to in terms of disputes with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would lead us in your spirit. You would break us of our pride. You would engender in us meekness and humility. We don't desire this road, but it's the road you've laid before us. So God, would you, would you inspirate us to be able to walk this? And Father, I pray for those this morning who are sitting here and they're wrestling and, and trying to decide if the truth claims of the gospel are, are worth it, if they are true and they are valid that your spirit would do a work in their heart. It would see in the gentleness and the kindness of Jesus, one who was defrauded and suffered wrong so that they might come to salvation. For we know salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. We know redemption in no other way except for his sacrificial death on the cross. And we know eternal life in no other way except through his resurrection, that he stands exalted, reigning forever with you on high. And he bids us to come. Come and receive forgiveness. Come and live with you forever. So Father, would you lead us with your spirit? Would you guide us? Would you lead us in this time as we worship you? Bring your spirit into this place. So we submit these things to you in Christ's name.